Hi, we are Generation Z Collective, Coco, Emron, Nile, and Yasmin. This is the Descendant Talks podcast at the National Maritime Museum, Greenwich. A series of conversation with creatives who are descendants of the Windrush generation. Hi, I'm Yasmin. Hi, I'm Emma, and this is the Descendant Talks, and we are talking to the artist Rochelle Romeo, who was raised and currently lives in North London. She expresses her opinions and thoughts through the medium of embroidery and various other processes, including print and paint. Welcome, Rochelle. Hi, thank you for having me. (laughs) Can we start with your art? It's a unique blend of different mediums, including poetry with a focus on embroidery. Have you always been interested in making art and why specifically embroidery? Yeah, um, I've always been a creative person. Um, As a child, I was that kid that was quite quiet that would be drawing in sketchbooks or doing craft stuff. Um, The reason embroidery was came to me really was when I was younger, I used to do a lot of the cross stitch sets that they used to sell. And then when I left school, when I was 16, I went to college to do graphic design. But graphic design is, you know, a lot of the work you go close up and it's like pixels. So when I kind of went into going and doing my degree into fine art later on, I found the connection between the embroidery, like cross stitching and pixelated um, artworks, like vector drawings and stuff, very similar. So I kind of made that transition that way. And plus I really like embroidery because I find it really therapeutic. You kind of close off and you become kind of on autopilot. It's a form of meditation in a way. So you wanted to put these two mediums together? Yeah, I wanted to kind of take what I learned from graphic design and incorporate it in my artistic process. But also, you know, like I said, when I was younger in the the 90s, these were the types of things we used to do like for fun and it was a very like feminine thing to do so I'm quite a womanist so kind of incorporating it with modern ideas and my lifestyle and kind of sharing my story through that process I found it um, it just made sense for me to go that way. What or who inspires your art and what motivates you to express yourself this way? I do enjoy other artists, you know, I really like Sonia Boyce, Cara Walker, Ellen Gallagher. However, my inspiration comes more from the, my life and the people I interact with, you know, social experiences, observations I make. Um, I've lived quite a colourful life, so I tend to kind of take my experiences and I create pieces of artwork hoping to make emotion, emotional connections with other people. Um, the reason I went into my art practice rather than staying into um, graphic design was because I wanted to evoke an emotion with the viewer. I found a lot of the times in my life I felt very alone in my experiences. So being able to create art because I wasn't very open and I wasn't very good at articulating myself at, when I was younger. So to go into art, I would be able to share my stories but also hiding in a way as well and be able to express how I was feeling and hopefully connect with other people that way. What's your favourite piece out of your art? I must admit, I do love the Lady Garden. Yeah, I probably I like that's that why one. I still own her. <laughs> the Lady Duck Garden came about as I was graduating, so it wasn't necessarily stuff that was kind of 
I was like uh, pushed towards because when you're at art school, they do kind of like say to you, "Oh, you should be doing stuff like this. You make yeah. it bigger. You should do that." Yeah, because you they mentioned put you in a structure in a box. They do. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm quite quirky and I've got quite a dry sense of humour, and so it kind of I had the freedom to kind of do what I wanted, and I really like colloquialisms. I really enjoy. I really like the English language, but I really like colloquialisms. I like to understand where sayings and things come from. The art piece identity isn't there, but I wanted to ask a question about it anyways. Sure. You mentioned that your father faced threats of being deported. How has that changed your view and brain as a whole? Yeah, identity was a piece that stemmed from a speech I did in Parliament for um, Diana Abbott's event she had in regards to the Windrush scandal when it was in its like prime, really. Um, when you read the words on that, it really kind of explains where my head was at then. You know, I felt really displaced. I felt as though, although I was born in Islington, this country wasn't my home. It was almost like I was a border in this country. I, you know, I could be picked up and thrown out at any time. Um, so even now, I do struggle with the idea of being British because the idea of what British was to me had been completely eradicated because of the actions of the Home Office at that time and the Passport Office as well, because it stemmed from them initially. Um, and then I went on to make a piece called Disown Britain, which kind of speaks about where I'm at now, where, you know, I've really connected with my history more and understanding, you know, slavery and things like that and how I came about. Obviously, it was always, I was always aware of it, but I didn't realise how present it is now in our situation, that it's nothing we can escape or and move on from because it's always kept around us. So, you know, it feels like being here has a different meaning to me. I always considered myself a Londoner, being British, and now I just feel like I'm an intruder in some way and feel a bit lost. You're a founding member of the Windrush Action. Can you tell us more about why it was necessary to set up this work and its importance? Yeah, I think a lot of the time when the scandal was coming up, there was a lot of people speaking on behalf of the survivors of the Windrush scandal. You know, you had a lot of people coming in and having their opinions and, you know, a lot of the time their, you know, their intentions were good. However, it wasn't really reflecting the voices of the people that had gone through those experiences. You know, no one can tell, no one's an expert on you apart from yourself. So it was really important when we got into um, all these spaces where we were talking and engaging with other people and supporting them, you know, by coming up and sharing their stories and actually getting help to actually allow them to have a space where they'd be supported and have a voice. Um, so the importance of that for me was to really kind of support other people to get to a position where my father got, alongside my father and a few other members that were affected by the Windrush scandal and kind of allow them to have that um, support and kind of engagement with, you know, structures because a lot of the time I found people were fearful and scared because authority is quite scary. And, you know, I think as black people, there's a lot of stereotypes around being black in this country. 
And a lot of the time, a lot of black people are scared of the authorities. So allowing them to have that space where they could break those stereotypes and actually share their stories without feeling that they were, you know, inferior and couldn't like, articulate things or, or wasn't educated to the standard that is seemed, but actually their voices mattered regardless. So I think it was really important for them to have that space and that's why we kind of focused on creating it. Obviously, um, you're supporting other people, but do you feel like you're getting the most sufficient support from the government? Well, I'm, unfortunately, I'm no longer part of Windrush Action. Um, my mother fell quite ill, so I had to take a step back. Um, however, I feel the government, no, they didn't really support me. Like, I'm still in the process now of working to get my compensation and supporting, you know, at the time, my father as well in regards to that. Um, but it's very, it's very difficult because we're dealing with people that are not relatable to the situation. Yeah. You know, so it's very hard to consistently repeat your trauma over and over and over again because I have an anxiety disorder. So it really, you know, and that most of that, well, the majority of that was triggered because everyone has anxiety now and again, but to kind of to kind of conform into a disorder itself was because of what happened um, at that moment in my life. How do you make them understand? Because obviously they don't have any experience with this. They don't have any personal relations to this situation. So how do you make them understand where you're coming from? And this is a struggle, you know, it's making them understand. I've constantly written letters, I've constantly spoken out on different platforms about how I feel. I've, unfortunately, I deleted my Facebook account because I was getting a lot of racial abuse on that, so that was quite difficult. I have spoken on news platforms, I've made art, I've, you know, I use things like Twitter and I've spoken to people. But it is so hard. If people don't want to engage with that and actually see the truth in it, it's very hard to make them understand. They have to be open and willing. So it's just a consistent, repetitive notion of sharing your trauma, opening wounds. And it is quite draining. Because obviously you can't force them to listen to you. No, but you can't. You can't force them to listen to you, but how do you not feel demotivated if they don't listen? You do. And I think that's down part of where my mental health, especially at that time, was so, so damaged. And then, but then sometimes you have those moments where you feel a bit strong again and you go at it again. I find that like a lot of people don't really want to understand black people's experiences. Mm. They're just trying to find a way for them to feel better about themselves. And, push it to the side. Yeah. yeah. And I think that reflects a lot about our like our school curriculum and our history. Um, I feel like the Windrush generation is barely ever talked about mm. in history, especially. And I feel like that's something that should be brought up to attention. How, yeah, and I'm just wondering, how do you think we could maybe try and improve that? Like what ways could we be better as a society, especially in Britain? 
Fortunately now we're in the age of the internet so I think we're really fortunate that we can educate ourselves a lot more now because we have these openings, we're not relying on just what the media says, we're not just relying on what the libraries have, we're able to connect with each other and kind of create those spaces and I think we need to continue creating those spaces and it is that thing, although we get demotivated you know, we need to kind of really push past that barrier when we hit that wall because people do need to listen. The Department of Education needs to take responsibility because they talk, they're really focused on transatlantic slavery rather than the slave trade in this country. Yeah, that's you know, when we look at, let's say as an artist, we look at the Tate and where that's, the money from that stems from because Tate Allah was sugar and we sugar plantations, slavery, you know, and we look at the Caribbean and we look at places in Africa that was colonised as well, like Uganda, Nigeria and different places, you know, and they don't teach that in the UK, in the schools, they teach about everyone else. And it's such a shame because actually, rather than being ashamed of it to keep this idea of Great Britain, what would be great about Britain if they acknowledged what they did and educated everyone because that could actually really support, you know, anti-racism. Yeah, I totally agree because I'm only discovering about the Windrush generation only recently. Mm -hmm. And obviously this has been a topic that has been a long time ago and I should have known about this earlier. Yeah, you know, my, my, for me, my grandma came over and in the 50s and she was a nurse you know and she experienced a lot of racism but she was part of the NHS and you know the Windrush generation was like nurses from Africa and the Caribbean coming over some Asia as well trying to support and you know when we built this NHS our ancestors did you know and none of that is recognized you know the railways things like that even down to like when I was growing up every one of my grandparents generation all had houses and I didn't really understand why they had houses and weren't in council housing many of them and it was because they wasn't allowed to go on the council list so it's about those experiences that we should still be talking about because we can learn from it you know when we think about gentrification and all that going on it's a cycle and it, it, we see, you know, in my 38 years, I've seen things repeating itself already. So, you know, if we educate ourselves about these things, we could hopefully make a change, but it is being persistent. And when we do feel knocked back, because we're human and we bleed, it's about taking that time and looking after ourselves and being able to then persevere again. Um, we're going to take it back to your art piece, Identity. Mm -hmm. um, is it okay if you could elaborate on the lines? We have broken up, you have lied to me. I love London. I was born in Islington. I used to go up central London all the time. Being told that my father's not British anymore because they decided that they, he didn't have the right paperwork which was a lie, you know, it kind of, because you take your father's nationality, so it kind of put me in limbo with, what, what am I then? So I've been living a lie because on my birth certificate it says I'm British, however, if you can take away my dad's, because my dad had a passport, but it was lost, if you can take that away from him so easily and threaten him with deportation, what does that leave me? It's like my whole life about being a Londoner and I was really proud of being a Londoner and everything else. 
if that, you know, that's a lie, then you've lied to me. You've, we've broken up because it was like London was my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. I know there's places in the UK where I'm not particularly welcome because of the colour of my skin. However, London was always my safety net. You know, I always knew, I always felt at home in London. Like, I'm a mix, so my mother's Mauritian Creole and my father's Antiguan. So, I don't consider either one of them my home. I've never been to Antigua before. I've been to Mauritius once when I was about five. So, I don't identify with those countries. I identify with London, but you're telling me possibly I'm not British. It's not making sense. It's not making sense. Oh, yeah, that this is all I know. So if you were to deport me, where would you deport me? I'm mixed. But no one wants to kind of acknowledge that. They just want to look at you for face value. But actually, we are all very mixed because of things that happen in history, and that's not taught. So, you know, I've got cousins that are very, very fair, but, you know, are black. And that's generation jumping from slavery. Do you feel like they're... As they're more fairer in skin, do you think that's given them a leeway when it comes to... Yeah, colourism, I believe, is really real. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel that... I've spoken to my daughters. My two older daughters are mixed and um, they're half white and they, can, they call themselves biracial. And, you know, I've had these conversations with my daughters, you know, because my mum grew up in Mauritius and my mum's my complexion, but she's got sisters and my grandma was very light. And on my dad's side as well, my grandma was quite light. And it is that privilege they have being lighter skinned because they're deemed more acceptable in society. Yeah. And also they're also deemed being beautiful, you know, in comparison to darker skinned women and men. And um, I've always taught my daughters that you know, you need to be mindful of that, that you have that privilege. Um, whereas, you know, they may not acknowledge that, but those are, again, it all stems from our history that's not taught. So these are things that we've kind of inherited generationally. I see that a lot of the time in a lot of Netflix shows, they always cast um, a black character as a biracial character. And obviously biracial people are black, but it kind of feels like erasure darker skin complexions, which is unfair. Absolutely, you know, and there's so many beautiful dark skinned women around, you know, but it's even like when you get to a status as a black person, you tend to pick a lighter partner and there's all these factors. I think um, there was one celebrity recently that made a comment about he only dates black women and um, he, he, it's all gone a bit wild online. Um, people are very upset by it. And it's like, well, he's a black guy. Why can't he be attracted to someone that reflects him? Exactly. And a lot of the time, I don't see the same outrage when black people say that they won't date their own race. It's mostly applauded and it's not treated the same way. So Absolutely, absolutely. And I find as well as black women, from my own experience, where I've dated um, white men, I've found that I've been really, really um, tarnished by black men, really negative um, comments and things like that. So again, it's that sexism as well and the misogynoir that comes into play. Too. When you've dated white men, have you educated them on your background? Yes, I think it's really important. Um, and some of them, sometimes it doesn't work out. 
no. <laughs> but you know, it's really important regardless because you know, end of the day, love, love is blind. You know, you should fall in love with who you fall in love with. Unfortunately, there are people that fetishize and go out with people for various reasons, whether it's color, whether it's um, status, all these different aspects, you know. And, but it's really important to stay true to yourself because when it comes down to it, you're never going to be happy if you're not true to yourself. Your art makes powerful statements with works entitled Pop My Cherry, Identity, Fanny Slang and Man Made. You explore issues such as identity, race and gender. What kind of reactions do you get and do the reactions affect you personally? Yeah, well, when I first started displaying my artwork, I never used to tell anyone I was the artist. Oh, really? Yeah. I used to be very, especially like, at the, yeah, at the beginning, I used to be very, very, very conscious for a couple of reasons. I wanted people to look at my art rather than look at me. I feel that a lot of black artists are boxed into the type of art they produce. Their art they produce is very beautiful, however, I am aware that my artwork doesn't mirror their type of artwork. Um, I feel that my artwork isn't, you know, it's, it could be anyone's artwork, if that makes sense. You know, anyone could, be create, could create it. So when I put up, um, let's say, Fanny slang, you know, so I had beef curtains, disco Fanny, all that good stuff. I used to put it up and I'll be in spaces where, you know, people would be like, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. And then like, I would just listen to what they said. Oh, wow. So they didn't know who I was. What type of responses did you get? Some of them was quite good. Um, you know, to be fair, a lot of it was quite good. They, they understood it. Some of them kind of took other things from it, but that's what art, I think personally, good art is meant to evoke an emotion. So it's supposed to be a conversation start, it's supposed to touch you somewhere, whether it's positive or negative, that doesn't really matter. If I get a reaction out of you, I've done my job. Basically. If face behind the art was someone that was white, would you think they would be different to knowing that you were the artist? I, I think so, yeah. I think, you know, as black women, culturally, we have, there's a lot of expectations around us. I can't really, to be honest, I can't really speak for a white person because I'm not white and that's their own experience and maybe they have those experiences. I don't want to kind of doubt them or make them feel like, you know, they're not relevant in what they, what they experience, but I can only speak for myself. But I feel that because of the cultural expectations, you know, of being modest and being strong and, you know, all these, you know, strong, I think is quite a negative word when it comes to black women because we're not allowed to be vulnerable and all these different aspects, you know, um, I feel that people would be more accepting, you know, if, if I was someone else. I feel like with black women, there's always this expectation to be strong, to be independent, and I love that you you chose to keep yourself private. Not that you should have done that, by the way. Mm. And I love that that forced other people to experience your work as it is, just on the canvas by itself without thinking, oh, is this about this because she's black? But they just saw it for what it was. Yeah, you know, we're political beings. And, uh, you know, also it's that kind of thing of like, we're meant to be really respectable. A lot of religion is around black culture as well. 
you know, I was raised a Catholic, although I don't practice it now. And so, you know, writing things and, you know, about beef curtains and drawing things or talking about sex and, you know, the experiences I've had around, you know, abuse and things like that. You, you don't talk about things like that. You know, I think as women generally, you don't talk about things like that. So, you know, it kind of was a safety net for me to kind of express those things and kind of put it out there to kind of say, wow, you know, yeah. I had a lady read um, that piece, uh, Man Made, and um, she, she came up and she found me and she, you know, she spoke to me and she was really overwhelmed. A couple of women as well with the organisation, um, Lon Art, that I did the show with when I first exhibited that, you know, they were really emotional and taken back by it and reading it. And um, because they it related to experience they had, but a lot of the time, as black women, we're so, we we hardened sometimes. And women generally harden. And we think these are things that should be happening because it's our normality, when actually no one's actually spoke about it to kind of say, no, it's not, it's not right, you know? And the more people speak about things, I believe, the more we'd be able to acknowledge as a society that it's wrong because we come together and shout out together that it's wrong. Have you ever had an experience where someone's interpreted your art the wrong way? Yeah. <laughs> there was one in particular when um, I was showing um, Disco Fanny in um, Brixton, um, I think you call it Brixton Village now, and a lady went to the gallery owner and complained. Oh, complained? Yeah, she complained. She said it was degrading to black women and it was wrong that we, oh, it was being sexualised, but it, you know. Um, and I felt she saw it in a way that I was kind of really sexualising. But again, she didn't know me as an artist. She didn't know who I was, she didn't, but she was really taken aback. And the gallery owner phoned me and was like, what should I do? And I said, you know, I'm okay with her being offended by it. It is what it is, that's her opinion. She's allowed to have her opinion. Um, it's interesting. I said, if it's up to you as a gallery owner, do you want to take it down? Because if you want to take it down and it makes you, you know, you're worried about yourself as a business, then by all means, you know. As a self-employed artist, how did lockdown affect you and was it difficult financially? Yeah, lockdown was hard. Um, at the time, I was in a two-bedroom flat with um, my daughters and it was really, really hard. Um, Although I'm self-employed, I do have a job as well. So I was working throughout lockdown at home. Um, and unfortunately, I, I made a couple of pieces, but I didn't make so many. I was also studying as well. Um, so I was studying my, my level four in person-centered counseling. So it was really tough going. Financially, I didn't do very well in lockdown. Um, I did, however, I had some things lined up from beforehand that I got some money in. I was fortunate, but I, and I, as I said, I've got a, a second job as well. For me, I gained a lot from going out in social circles and observing. I'm an observer, I'm a people watcher. So I didn't get, I wasn't able to do any of that. So I really struggled with my own well-being in that, in that time. Um, however, what it did unlock for me was using the internet to gauge with people. So I did a lot of interviews. So although it wasn't paid work, I kind of networked quite a lot in that time. 
Being a mum of three children, what are your hopes and fears for your children in the future? I think safety. I think that's a major thing for me. And safety is quite vast, really, but safety with, like, you know, re being on the streets and being safe. You know, now I've got a son as well as two daughters that which come with their own different um, trials and tribulations and dangers and so forth. So I really want safety for them. I want safety mainly for them so they can be themselves, they can be their authentic selves and just be able to navigate through life. What song or piece of music have you inherited from your parents and family that connects to their youth? See, I was mainly with my mum when I was younger. And so, um, yeah, I feel that my mum's Mauritian Creole. So although she came to this country when she was 12, she did bring a lot of um, Sega music, which is the authentic Mauritian music. Um, and things like um, Jean-Claude and Serge Lebrasse, and they used to do like their Sega music and with the Ravan, the, the drums and the traditional wear and like having those cassette tapes, always reminding of family like events and stuff like that. So I think that's what I've inherited. But also, which I still do listen to a lot of, my mum loved Motown. You know, that type of music, it just makes me feel at home. Thank you for coming and talking with us. Thank you for being here, Rochelle. I hope you obviously enjoyed the questions that we asked. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been really lovely talking to you both.